what happens if you have a heart attack up there? And I looked at him and I said, Dad, that means it's the end of the line. I'm going to die. Uh, and, 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 and there's that danger. You know, if you break a leg, there's no easy way out. Uh, you know, if you're three miles up a, up a stream with no cell phone service, you're on your own. And there's something about that that appeals to me. I'm not quite sure what, but it, it just appeals to me. How's Bob Romano shedding some light on the impact of a little wild wilderness? This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Podcast. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thank you for stopping by the show. If you're new to the show and you want to get notified when the next episode drops on this one, you can just go to wetflyswing.com slash subscribe. And I'll give you a quick way to uh, subscribe to whatever app you're listening on to right now. Lake Lady Rods builds distinctive custom rods, each created one at a time to the exact specifications for each angler. Lake Lady only uses world-class top-of-the-line components. Just ask some of the governors and senders that Chris has worked with over the years, including Jesse Ventura. These rods are crafted to be a super sensitive tool that you are going to love. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash lakelady right now. That's lakelady, L-A-K-E-L-A-D-Y. Daddy Flies, the oldest family-run fly shop in the country, now in their 94th season. Daddy's mission has always been to supply the fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select domestic tires. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash daddy right now. That's Deddy, D-E-T-T-E. You support this podcast by clicking over there now. Bob Romano takes us into the lakes and streams of the Rangeley region today. We find out why he has been traveling up to this area for over 40 years, how you can put together a trip of your own, and some of the history, people, and storied waters that make this such an amazing adventure up here. Plus, we get another Carrie Stevens shout out. So without further ado, here is Bob Romano. How's it going, Bob? Uh, pretty good. We're getting a big snowstorm tomorrow, but right now the sun is out, uh, the birds are at the feeder, and the deer are on the dam. So it's going to be a good day today. Yes. <laughs> so today, so when you get hit with the big snowstorm, is, is it a bad day, or how's that look? Well, uh, you know, I've got about 900 to 1,000 foot dirt drive that leads from the Macadam Road to my house, and I've got to plow it. So, mm. uh, you know, we get more than six inches. It, it's a little bit of a headache, but oh, you know, yeah. once it's up, uh, everything's good. Gotcha. And you plow it with the, what you got one of those trucks with the big plower on the, on the front end. Actually, I've got a, uh, a pretty decent sized Kubota tractor. Oh, right. Yeah. We've got 12 acres of land around our, our little house and, and, um, I heat the house with wood, uh, as much as I can. So I use that tractor, you know, quite a bit. Oh, wow. That is cool. So yeah, in 12 acres, that's a nice little, sounds like a nice little ch- little spot up there. Uh, so so we're going to dig into, um, we're going to focus uh, on kind of the main, I guess today, you know, a little bit of that part of the country and, and what you have going. You've written a, a few books and you've got a website and you do, you've done the tour, the fly fishing tour a little bit. So we're going to talk a little bit about all that and help people understand uh, kind of that part of the, of the country. But take us back really quick to fly fishing, just uh, how you first got into it. Yeah, well, um, I'm actually a kid from the Bronx of all, of all places. My, my, uh, my folks grew up in the Bronx 
and they moved to suburban New Jersey. And uh, my dad, when I was seven or eight years old, would take me to a semi-polluted river and, and we would fish with corn and um, cornmeal and dough, uh, uh, dough balls for carp, of all things. And um, that was that was pretty much it until um, uh, in my teens, you know, I started fishing as a lot of us uh, did with a spinning rod and lures and worms. And uh, then I went to college and I, I discovered fly fishing. I think I actually uh, the first book I read on fly fishing was by um, um, uh, Volker. Um, oh, yeah. uh, Travers, I think, was, yep. was his AKA. And, and uh, I was, you know, I was just fascinated actually with the fly fishing literature to begin with. Um, and then got myself a, 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 a Cortland, uh, a fiberglass mm -hmm. fly rod. And, uh, and it really never looked back. That's interesting because Cortland, so what year was this? Yeah, this was in the sixties. So oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Right. So this is before, literally before graphite. Yeah. And I remember, uh, early on that, uh, I would have my spinning rod and my fly rod, you know, in the car and I would, I would, uh, you know, fly fish for an hour and of course not see a fish because I really didn't know what I was doing. And then I would take my spinning rod out and, and, uh, and eventually, um, uh, and this was, this was during the, the late sixties, the Vietnam war was going on. My yep. dad was a, was a veteran from world war II. Oh, wow. you know, and I was a, a, you know, a kid in college with, with long hair and, and the whole thing. And, uh, we really uh, got into some pitch battles, you know, oh. over the war. So, uh, when I, when I graduated, uh, we were barely talking and, um, I don't know whether it was his idea or probably my idea. And I say, hey, let's take a weekend and go up to, um, at the time we lived about an hour or so uh, from the Catskills uh, mm -hmm. in, in New York state. Uh, and, uh, the, the, um, the Beaverkill river, uh, I guess you, you know, the Beaverkill, yep. it's a pretty famous river oh, yeah. and a place called the atrium lodge. Uh, and at the time it was pretty famous lodge in the forties, fifties and sixties, all the fly fishing notables, you know, would stay there. So, uh, I said, Hey pop, you know, why don't, why don't we go up there? I figured maybe we could, we could, uh, uh, you know, become friends again. And, um, he, he's got his spinning rod and I've got my fly rod. Uh, he, he, he took fly fishing as an offense, you know, it was just one <laughs> more sort of thing. Yeah. And, and, and he would always catch more fish than I did. He was, a, he really was an excellent fly fisherman. When, uh, I'm sorry, fisherman when it came to worms and lures and things of that sort. So he's fishing with, with, with worms that day and I'm fly fishing, still really not knowing what I'm doing. And, uh, I look back on it now and there was a Hendrickson hatch, oh, but I didn't, wow. I just knew that it was a kind of a big dun colored mayfly. And I don't know what I put on, but I still, for the first time I actually started, uh, uh, catching fish. And I remember that was, that was it. I, I put my spinning rod away, never used it again. Uh, it happened to be a great weekend. My father and I got together after that and, um, um, we kind of, you know, made up and, uh, thankfully I had him for many, many years before he passed away in his, in his late eighties. So it, it, it all, it all ended well. Wow. So that's, that is amazing. Your dad was a, uh, your dad was a bait fisherman and you were a fly fisherman, just like the, uh, you know, some of the, the, you know, the river Y, right. You know, there's some books that have written about that. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. The river Y. Sure. <laughs> yep. That's pretty good. So, and, and you've written a few books along the way too. And uh, so I love the counterculture uh, topics. We had uh, uh, Taylor Streit was on recently and uh, he talked about a similar thing. He was out back in that your neck of the woods. Then he ended up moving out to New Mexico. Um, but 
that culture was pretty powerful, right, in the 60s. I mean, I've read about it, and, and it was a big time. What, what was the—I mean, when you look back on it, what do you take away from that period of your life that really is something that, you know, influenced where you are today? Well, I, I mean, I— I am a child of the 60s, uh, and uh, quite honestly, my politics haven't changed. Uh, you know, they, they 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 say, I guess, when you're younger, you're a liberal, and as you grow older, you become more more conservative. Oh, right. Uh, I I really haven't changed. I mean, in fact, the uh, the writers that I um, uh, fell in love with back then, uh, you know, I'm still reading them. Um, you know, Brodigan, uh, uh, the, the poet David Brodigan, uh, mm-hmm. who who uh, passed away. Um, Gary Snyder, uh, who is a beat poet and a writer, um, trying to think of some some of the others. Uh, uh, McGuane, uh, oh, Tom yeah. McGuane, around uh, Harrison, uh, you know all those all those guys. Um, you know, I'm still going back, and and, and they were a, really a great influence. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Snyder was interesting because he, uh, he went over to Japan and really um, got into the, the whole Buddhist culture. Hmm. And I I haven't been you know, to, to Asia, but, uh, I'm, I'm very, very much interested in, uh, uh Buddhism, uh, and that, that whole culture and it, it affects my writing. And one thing I really enjoy as a writer, um, you know, I'm writing about fly fishing and, you know, a lot of fly fishing guys and gals who are fly fishing wouldn't know the first thing about Buddhism or about the, there's a poet called uh, Bashu, you know, they, they wouldn't know who he is. So I get to kind of sneak in references like that into my books that hopefully, you know, uh, this, uh, there are going to be a few readers that that are going to say, well, "What's he? Who's he talking about? Who's this guy Bashu?" You know, that maybe maybe they do a Google search and then maybe they pick up a, a book of poems and say, "Hey, this this is this isn't so bad." Uh, so I get to do that, uh, and I find that uh, to be a lot of fun. Right, right. So that influences your influences your writing, and you influence other people. Now, on your writing, are you doing more more of um, kind of philosophic sort of stuff versus like tips and tricks in your fly fishing? Yeah. You know, when I have folks come up to me at a fly fishing show, you know, they may want me to sign a book or so. And I do programs at some of these fly fishing shows on fly fishing. But what I tell folks is to me, there, there are two types of writers. So there is the, the fisherman who's a writer, right? He's an angler first, yep. uh, George Daniels, uh, um, you know, all the guys that are out yep. there and they are giving the tips and they're telling you the how to, and then there are the writers who fish, uh, and you know, we may not necessarily be, be an expert and, and I'm certainly no expert. Uh, I, I'm a writer, uh, who, who fishes. Um, and I found a niche in that nearly 40 years ago, uh, when my wife and I were, were dating, um, she spent all her summers in uh, North Conway, uh, New Hampshire, and she knew I enjoyed fishing. So she took me up there and I enjoyed it, but, uh, it was still fairly crowded. There were a lot of, um, outlet stores and things like that. And I, you know, I just, there's gotta be more, more to Northern New England than this. And we kept on driving North and we ended up in this, uh, region of Maine, uh, the Northwest corner of the state which is called the Rangeley Lakes region. And, uh, we spent a week at a sporting camp. Uh, and to me, a kid growing up in the Bronx, uh, it was as wild as, as Alaska. I yeah. mean, it, it, I, I just never seen, you know, such wild country where you could be on a lake where you couldn't see either shore and spend the entire day and never see another boat and never see another angler. Wow. Is it still that way up there? 
It is. It is. Uh, 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 pretty much hasn't changed, quite frankly, since the late 1800s. Uh, well, we can get to that uh, later on. But, um, you know, the rivers and you can fish a river or a stream up there. If you're fishing the smaller streams, you'll never see another angler. Uh, the rivers, you know, obviously the, the rivers that have trophy fish in them, you are going to see other fishermen. But, you know, on a mile stretch of river, if you see 10 anglers, that's crowded. Uh, yeah. I probably would walk away and, and not want to fish that river. That would be too many. So for me, that became the canvas on which, uh, you know, I wanted to get my ideas across. Uh, and so I concentrated my writing in that region. I always wanted to be a writer, but when I was, uh, you know, a kid out of college, I had no life experience. I really had nothing to write about. And, and when I did try to write, it was crap because I just, I, I just had no experience. <laughs> yeah. Right. Who were some of you yeah. mentioned, right. You mentioned the writers, you know, fly fishermen who write and George Daniel said that exact same thing. When, we, when I had him on, he said that, yeah, oh, he's a, right? Yeah, he's a fly fisherman who writes. But who are the other writers who fly fish? I, I can think of one, John Girock and, and probably McGuane. Who else would you add to, if you had a list of, say, like five to ten people? Who would the, be the other top names? Um, I'm going to have to think about that. I mean, I mean, there are there are writers uh, that um, uh, are wrote about Maine. Um, uh, McDougal uh, is one that re- he wrote in the in the 30s. Um, there's probably Three or four from Maine that that, that I uh, really enjoy. I mean, was McGuane? Yeah, McGuane and Harrison. Um, McGuane was from Maine. Is that correct? No, no, no. McGuane was at, he was from New England. I think Massachusetts. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. That's a tough one. I'll put a link in the show notes to um, some uh, top fly fishing riders from from the Northeast, just to see if we can follow up on this a little bit. That is a yeah. that is a tough yep. question, uh, but uh, but yeah. So take us to. Um, I want to dig into, and we're going to get to some of your your books and stuff, you know, as we sure. get into this. But you know, I would talk about Maine itself. You've got this Rangeley region, and you've got other parts of Maine. Um, so if somebody think of this, somebody's coming there and they don't know Maine at all. They want to do some fishing. Uh, break down a little bit of of what you'd expect with Maine. It seems you know you're up in the corner, right? You're up there, way up high in the corner of the country, yeah. tucked up in, in between, you know, next to Canada, and and it's it seems like you know most of the time you think of it being really cold, but is it break down Maine a little bit for us? Yeah, yeah. So. Um, the northern tier of the state is basically a, a conifer forest, and uh, it's known for its logging. Quite frankly, I mean that's that's the the big industry uh, in that in that part of the state. And you know if if you if you're going to be fishing for um, native brook trout, which is what Maine is known for, you're going to be fishing in that northern tier, and and it goes clear across the state from east to west. So the northeast section of Maine, which is known as Down East. Um, that, that is just one particular area. And, and the little town of Grand Lake stream is where people would gravitate. I think there's 150 residents there. Uh, speaking of writers, Randy Spencer, uh, is, is a, um, preeminent guide and, and he guides out of Grand Lake stream. And quite frankly, he's just written a book, uh, that I did a review on, uh, um, and, and he's written a number of books, uh, and he's a great writer. So, so that's one section of Maine. Uh, it's known for its bass, uh, mm. its smallmouth bass, and it's known for its landlocked salmon uh, more, more than anything else. Uh, and then in the in the middle of the state, again, this is the northern tier, but more in in the middle uh, is the Moosehead Lake region. Um, there's some great writing on that that goes back to the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, 
Um, and uh, there's, there's, I mean, the Moosehead Lake is like an ocean. Uh, yeah. But again, you've got your rivers and streams all around there. That is known more for its brook trout, but also for its uh, its landlocked salmon. And then in the western uh, uh, northwest corner of the state, that's the Rangeley Lakes region. Uh, which is uh, a number of lakes, obviously, uh, five or six of them. And then above those lakes and below them are the rivers and streams that, you know, fly fishermen would want to fish. The Ranger Lakes, which I write about, uh, they date back to the uh, late 1800s when people from uh, New York and Massachusetts and uh, 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 southern New England discovered uh, that the brook trout uh, weighed uh, five and six pounds, uh, and and these were just just huge uh, native wow. fish. Now um, there are reasons why uh, we don't have those fish any longer in that size. I I, I won't bore the the folks with the reasons why, yep. but. To this day, um, uh, that Rangy Lakes region has the largest brook trout in the United States. Hmm. Uh, you won't find any larger, and we still measure them in pounds rather than inches. Uh, and uh, you know, now now we're talking about you know two and three pound trout as opposed to uh, you know five and, and six pound uh, trout. Yeah. Um, so that that's really what it's known for and has been known for since the 1800s. And there are so many interesting characters, uh, both uh, male and female, uh, who have gravitated toward that area uh, over the years uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, you know, right up until today, uh, that again, it, it, this rich sporting tradition uh, is what draws, uh, certainly draws me there. Um, you know, you could be fishing on a run or a pond uh, that, say, Carrie Stevens uh, fished, uh, and you could be standing in the very spot maybe where she was casting her gray ghost streamer. And I've many, many a day I'm out there and, and, you know, the, the hair in the back of my neck will go up and I'll turn around and I I'll swear that the ghosts of, of, of some of these characters are staring back at me kind of smiling, you know, when I screw up or, or, or whatever. That's right. Uh, that, that's kind of fun of, of fishing in, in that region. Uh, it's cool. And so Carrie Stevens and who was, and obviously that's a pretty uh, decent, uh, good size name. Uh, talk about Carrie really quickly. What was, yeah, uh, so, so, yeah. So, so back in the, in the thirties and forties, if you were a, a writer, a poet, an artist, uh, you, you were gravitating toward Paris, France, uh, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and, and Picasso. Um, um, I mean, that, that's where they, that's where they spent their time. But if you were an angler, especially on the East coast, the place you wanted to be it was called Upper Dam, and uh, Upper Dam. Um, uh, there are cottages on either side of, of, of Upper Dam, and uh, it holds back the water of Mooseluk Magantic Lake from uh, the water of Rangeley Lake. And there's maybe uh, I don't know three, four, five hundred yards of heavy water coming out of the bottom of that dam that would be fished like a river, uh, even though you're you're actually on, on the lake. So uh, back in the in the 30s and 40s, uh, the folks that that gravitated, you know, toward the Rangeley Lakes region, uh, they they would be hanging out on the dam. And uh, the preeminent guide at the time was Wallace Stevens, and his wife Carrie. Uh, uh, I believe her father was um, in the hat business. Uh, it was a haberdasher, and so she had access to feathers and oh, felt. Right wool and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, 
Um, most people don't realize it, but when she fished, she fished with worms. Huh. Uh, but, but, but she, she, I guess she got into tying, uh, you know, flies and, and whatnot. And, and I don't think streamers were even known at the time, but our bait fish are smelt, uh, and, and our fish, our trout and our salmon, uh, really grow large, uh, on, on these smelt. So she was trying to come up with a smelt, you know, an impersonation of a smelt. And, uh, she, uh, tied a particular streamer. Uh, and, um, um, she goes, she goes down to upper dam and, uh, she ends up catching, I don't know, the six pound, uh, nader brook trout. And, um, she won, uh, a prize from field and stream. Uh, they, they, they have, I guess they had a contest every year. And so she gets into, in field and streams magazine. And I, I guess everybody sees the fish she caught. And from that day on, everybody wanted Carrie Stevens streamers. And she caught it on a streamer. She caught it on that ghost. Or so it goes. Yeah, that's the not that's on just, a worm. Not on a worm. <laughs> yeah, not on a worm. And and um, her most famous streamer is the gray ghost. Yeah. And you know, we're using that today uh, to catch uh, uh, salmon and trout. And uh, you know, a lot of a lot of folks will tell you that's what she caught this big fish on. There's a lot of controversy over it. You know, what streamer did she actually use? But that's that's the story, and that's that's how she became famous. And her streamers, to, as I say, to this day, uh, anglers are using them probably all over the country, if not all, all over the world. And we're certainly, uh, you know, using them uh, up in Maine. Nobody knows her husband, uh, you know, now. I mean, he was he was the preeminent guide at the time. Nobody knew her. Now everybody, everybody knows uh, Carrie. And, and this, again, was in the 30s and 40s. And, and that's just one, you know, one individual. Um, if we have the time, I could tell you some other stories. There's just so many of them. Yeah, right. Well, if I was coming in, let's let's say I was going to be flying into the cool thing is you got Portland, Maine, right? Is that your biggest uh, city there? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say. Yeah. So if I was uh, flying into Portland, if I just kind of dropped in there, grabbed a, a rental car, where should I go? What should I be? What should my itinerary look like from there? Well, again, you're you're going to drive north, and you're either going to go east uh, to to Grand Lake Stream. Uh, you'll go uh, directly, you know, north, uh, which would take you to that Moosehead region, uh, or you're going to go west, uh, and and you'll be to the Rangeley region. They're probably all uh, probably equally distant uh, from Portland, and I'm going to guess at uh, I'm going to say maybe a three hour drive from Portland. Uh, people that live in, in New York and, and New Jersey, you're talking about, a uh, to the Rangeley region, you're talking about a nine hour drive and to Grand Lake stream, maybe a, a 12 hour drive. And you've got the, and you've got kind of the, the Appalachian mountains, right? They're kind of like uh, right along that area where you're, where you're talking about here. Yes. In fact, that is correct. I never, I didn't think too much about that, but yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a number of, of mountain ranges up in that region, but, but yeah, the Appalachians definitely go through, um, um, they're just, just South, I believe of, of the town of Rangeley. And we have the boundary mountains, which are the mountains. I mean, literally from my cabin, uh, when I look North, uh, um, you know, I'm seeing what are called the boundary mountains on the other side is, is Canada. And, and, and uh, there's a particular pond that I fish where I'm fishing and my wife and daughter just walk up a trail and they literally walk up and across the boundary, uh, with Maine. That's right. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Because you're tucked in, you got Canada surrounding you on the, on the West and East. And then you got, uh, you know, you got the Atlantic ocean down kind of South and then that's right. And then what's the state, what's the state just to your uh, West? That would be New Hampshire. 
the lake that my cabin is on, and I'm on the eastern shore uh, of Aziskahas Lake, and, and the western shore, um, the logging road that goes up the side of the western shore goes in and out of New Hampshire. So that's as far, that's how west we are. We're literally, uh, where, where the other side of the lake is nearly in New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This, uh, this is cool. This is a, your way, it's a pretty cool area. And, um, and let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the seasons a little bit there, because now it's, uh, we're going to be going into, let's just, let's just take it to kind of April, say a, a latish April. What's going on that time of the year? I mean, are you fishing more lakes or ponds and then talk about what's going on or lakes or streams and then what's going on, uh, that time of year? Sure. So I'm smiling as you say April, because I guess in most states, April, April 1st uh, or, or thereabouts, or maybe the, the April 15th uh, is the uh, official you know, beginning of the season. And April 1st is the beginning of our season in Maine. Uh, but you better have your snowshoes on. Uh, hmm. our, our lakes are iced over until the oh, middle. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't get into my cabin until either the second or the third week of May. Jackson Hole Fly Company may sound like a new brand, but they've actually been designing and manufacturing fly gear for quite some time. In 2020, they launched jhflyco.com and started selling gear directly to anglers all over the country. You can take a look right now. They've got a huge selection of rods, reels, lines, accessories, flies, everything you can imagine. And I've got a couple of killer products that I am using and will continue using this year, including my sling, my sling pack, and a great trout setup, six weight, that uh, has been good. And I'm going to be testing it out on, on a nice still water trip coming up here soon. Just like Amazon, they ship everything directly to your door, saving you time and money. But unlike Amazon, you'll be supporting a great shop and a great podcast along the way. You can head over to jhflyco.com swing right now and you get 25% off your first order. Free shipping on all orders over $50 as well. That's jhflyco.com slash swing to get started right now. Oh, wow. So you're not even, is there any place in May uh, in, in Maine during that time of year where you're fishing that's not ice fishing? Yeah, I'm, th there is. Uh, th th no question about it. Southern Maine, you know, it's going to be open and uh, there is a tailwater in the Rangy Lakes region that's open, but, but I, I'm not joking. I mean, if you're fishing that in April, you've got your, your ski, uh, uh, you know, outfit on and gloves on and, and there's ice along the edges of the stream. And, uh, yeah, you, and yeah, you're going to be nymphing really, really deep trying to wake these fish up. Right. Uh, uh right, but, right. uh, as I said, I, I don't, I don't get to my cabin until I, I don't live in Maine just to be clear. So, uh, you know, I live, uh, I'm in the North, uh, again, Northwest corner of New Jersey uh, at a place called the Delaware water gap on the Delaware river. Uh, so I, uh, I get up to my camp, uh, usually the second or the third week of May. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And one of the best times to fish, uh, is the second and third week of May. What happens is, uh, as soon as the ice comes off the lakes, our bait fish, those smelts, uh, they're now on their spawning run. So the bait fish are, are just, you know, inundating the, the, the rivers and streams above the lakes and our big fish, our sporting fish, the, the trout and the salmon, 
they're following. You know, after a long winter under the ice, they're following those smelts up the river and gorging on them. And and that goes on for uh, right after ice out uh, until the rivers and streams start to go down a little bit. You know, because they're swollen with with uh, snow melt and and spring uh, spates and whatnot. So that'll go on for a good two weeks, and it's almost a circus atmosphere. You know, everybody wants to get into the river at that time mm. because that's a really great time for trophy fish. Gotcha. Uh, and you can, um, uh, the old timers like me, uh, uh, I never thought I would be an old timer, but <laughs> I guess, I am. uh, you know, we're still using streamers because we're imitating those, those smelts. Uh, the young guys like yourself, uh, you know, they're nymphing, whether it's check nymphing right. or whatever. Uh, but they're gonna, you're going to catch just as many fish nymphing, maybe even more, uh, than you will with, uh, streamers. There's absolutely no, dry fly action whatsoever in those first two weeks. Uh, I'm sorry, those last two weeks of May. Again, we're still, you know, this is, that's the beginning of our yep. season. So everything is subsurface. If, you, if you're going up that time, I wouldn't even bring any dry flies with me. No. I wouldn't wait. And how are you fishing those streamers up there? Uh, yeah, again, you gotta, you do have to figure where are those fish? So if it was a super cold winter and you know, the water is still really cold or really high, you know, obviously you're fishing them deep, uh, but there are seasons when uh, we didn't get as much snow, and so the river isn't as flooded as it normally would be, and you can fish them a little bit higher, you know, closer to the surface. Um, you want to fish something with a white wing, apparently, and I can't tell you why, but I know it, it works. Uh, the white wing on the uh, on the streamer somehow uh, imitates the smelt uh, because they really go nuts for that, that time of year. And there's a famous fly called a black ghost. Uh, it's kind of silly. It's called a black ghost. It's got a white wing on it, but the body is black. And it was tied by a guy uh, uh, called um, uh, Herb. Uh, now I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, how, how did the black, so you have the black ghost. And what was, what was Carrie Stevens' fly? That was a gray ghost. Oh, so you got the gray ghost and the black ghost. That's confusing, right? So they were tying these streamers at the same time, and uh, Herb Welch tied the Black Ghost, and Carrie tied the Gray Ghost, uh, and they're both very effective streamers, but the Black Ghost, which is just a black wool body uh, with white tinsel, uh, a silver tinsel, I should say, and then it's got a white wing, uh, a, a saddle hackle, you know, yep. for, for the wing. Long, yeah. And that knocks them dead in, in the beginning of the season. Um a little tip that I tell folks is, you know, if you're if you're swinging streamers and you're using um, uh, hackle feathers, and most of these streamers do use hackle feathers, yeah. um, you really have to know how to tie them. Uh, so if you're an amateur and you're you're not getting that that saddle hackle tied correctly, the streamer is going to twirl and it's not going to be effective. I'll put a, uh, Bob, I'll put a link to, I, I talked to this about uh, John Shuey. I asked him this question and I'll put a link to that episode. He covered it. We had like a little segment on that and you could probably tell us, uh, do you want, is there a tip that you have for keeping those straight? Yeah. The tip is don't use saddle hackle. Oh, just use marabou, you know, the same recipe, whatever gotcha. the color would be. But if you use a marabou feather, you can't go wrong. I, I mean, I don't care how poorly you tie it. Yeah. You can't go wrong, but it doesn't look quite as nice as a nice uh, saddle hackle, right? I've converted most of my streamers now. I've converted those saddle hackles to marabou. Oh, wow. Wow. I've had great success with that. That's amazing. Um, well, sticking with the season. So that is really a, a great time of year to fish. And then as we you know, get into the end of May and the beginning of June, uh, that's when our, our dry fly season starts. 
Um, and that, you know, continues uh, through the year. Throughout Maine, we really do not have sustained hatches the way you might. Uh, again, I'm familiar with the Catskill streams, yeah. and the Pocono streams, and so the West Branch of the Delaware or the Housatonic. Um, I, you know, I don't know out west. Um, yeah, how is the Delaware? How is that different? Is it are the hatches longer on the Delaware? Yeah, yeah. I mean, take a sulfur hatch; it could go on for three weeks. Uh, the, the Hendrickson hatch. You know, you can almost time your watch three o'clock in the afternoon in, in late April, and it, it'll go on for it'll a week. It'll go on. Do all those, do you have, even though they're shorter hatches, do you have all the big hatches up there in, in Maine? We do. Uh, but for instance, uh, you know, Hendrickson hatch might go on for an hour on a, on a short section of stream. And, you know, your buddy could be fishing just upstream and not, not see a single Hendrickson. Um, so because of that, the fish are not selective. Um, you know, if you have a whether it's a Hendrickson, a blue quill, a black quill, a quill Gordon, uh, you know, whatever is hatching, you could use any one of those flies and in all likelihood would be successful. Our fish, and there are two reasons for this. I think one is that um, these are not fertile streams, and so you don't have the rich hatches you might have in other places. And a lot of our rivers are, you're talking very heavy water. Uh, you know, you're, you're fishing uh, basically rapids interspersed with here and there, very large uh, pools. Oh, so, no. you know, yeah, because of that, the brook trout, number one, don't have time to check out, you know, what's going over their heads. So they're going to hit whatever they see. And then number two, because you don't have a sustained hatch, uh, you know, again, they really can't be selective. They want to, if there's food, they want to take it. Yeah. And are you fishing more of the streams or the, or the lakes up there? I'm fishing mostly the streams and rivers. Yeah. Yeah. And is that because it's just, I mean, are there lots of people fishing lakes too? No, 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 not at all. It, it's just because, I, I mean, that's what I enjoy doing. Um, you know, if you're, if you're fishing from, I mean, I'll fish a small stream from a canoe. I'll take a canoe up a stream uh, and I'll certainly do that and on a pond. Uh, but when you're fishing the lakes, uh, the classic way to fish a lake in New England is to troll. Um, mm -hmm. And again, you can troll from a canoe with, with streamers. You can you can control from a larger larger uh, craft. You know, using streamers if you want. Uh, but but that's a kind of a sedentary way of fishing. Uh, and I'm not knocking it. I'll use it if I've got a you know if I'm if I've been wading in heavy water for three or four days in a row and my legs are starting to get shaky or you know maybe I've fished all day and now I've had dinner and I I want to go out in my canoe or or my my grumman. I'll troll. I'll bring my wife out. She likes to troll. Um, but for the most part, I like to wade. I like to work my way up and down the stream and, and fish different water. Gotcha. It's either the smaller water, which I really enjoy because you can really get into the backwoods and, and uh, you see a lot of wildlife. You're not going to see any anglers. Uh, you're really going to be, you're above beyond. That's a term that uh, Randy Spencer likes to use, above and beyond above and beyond so you're above and beyond like kind of yeah. the, the u.s basically or yeah 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 uh um, you're way up there now the bigger rivers that's where you're going to get trophy fish uh and so if you know if that's what you're looking for yeah where would that be where would that be if you somebody wanted to get it sounds like it's going to be a little busier in those rivers but w what would be a, a trophy place you can get one of those trophy uh brook trout in the Ranger Lakes region, uh, it would be the McGalloway River, uh, which um, there's a section that, that is below Route 16, and it, it runs for about a mile, mile and a half. 
there is the Rapid River, which is about six miles of brutal, literally rapids. Um, I describe both the McGalloway and the Rapid. Uh, there was a movie that came out about 10 years ago called uh, No Country for Old Men. Oh, yeah. And I tend to think that these rivers are, are no rivers for old men. Uh, and, and I get to say that because I'm an old man. Are you so? Are you not? Are you uh, not battle like doing the, the extreme stuff anymore? Well, I am, but I, I will tell you that um, I think it was last year or the year before that uh, I looked very uh, longingly uh, out to a particular um, pool that I had fished for many years and uh, realized I will never fish it again. I can't get to it. Uh, the water yeah. is just too heavy. So even with a waiting staff, it, right. it, uh, it, it's just it's just too difficult. I hear you. I hear you. So if we take it to the McGalloway and, and you were going to be out there setting up for one of these trophy, trying to get a big fish, what would you, uh, you know, what would be the advice there? Is there a, a, is that a pretty challenging thing to land one of these fish or even get into them? Uh, it sure is. I mean, first of all, you're going to want to fish deep, uh, and you're probably best served fishing, uh, with, with a nymph rig, probably a, a double nymph rig, maybe with a larger nymph, but, but also maybe a 20 or a 22. Uh, and you want to just be able to get it as deep as you possibly can. I mean, whatever technique you want to use or use an articulated streamer. And again, try to get that as deep as you can. And the, what these rivers are like is you got these really heavy, heavy rapids. And then in between, you'll get maybe five or six major pools. Uh, and that's where those big fish are lying. Uh, and they're just going to be lying very, very uh, deep. And that's what you have to do. You've got to get into those pools and you've got to be, uh, you know, uh, persistent and, and mm. getting your, your, your rig down there deep. I mean, there are times when they'll come up to the surface, but, right. but it, it, it's pretty rare. And then, yeah. and then just hold on for dear life. Uh, because, yeah. uh, you know, if you do get one, the first thing they're going to do is, is take you into those rapids below the pool. Uh, and uh, right. you, you may be, dancing along the shoreline or, or wherever, try, trying to keep them on. I mean, I've lost so many big fish, it, it's beyond belief. Right, right. So you've targeted these big fish over the years. You've definitely got into a few? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, just to tell you, do we have time for a quick story? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. go for it. So uh, I've actually written about this story probably in five or I've used this story, which is true. It's about me, uh, but I've used it in different ways to tell uh, short stories where I, I'll put characters kind of into this this position. So uh, my wife and I, this was our first year uh, in the Rangeley Lakes region, and we were staying at a sporting camp, which Maine is known for its traditional sporting camps. Again, these sporting camps literally go back to the 1800s, the, the actual buildings that you're staying in. And so we're there, and, and I was kind of just learning about fly fishing at the time and uh, certainly didn't know how to fish in Maine, and I wasn't having very much luck. And Tom Rideout, who's a pretty well-known uh, guide in the area um it was his sporting camp and and he he was going table to table and, and uh, you know i said tom you know i'm not having much success and he hands me this fly and it's a big kind of ugly uh maybe a number eight or or ten kind of like streamer uh, uh and he says well you, you know try this and i said well what, what in god's name does this imitate and he just looks at me and he says meat and potatoes boy meat mm. and potatoes Yep. So it was my last night in camp and it was raining and I wasn't even going to go out. And my wife said, my dad says that the, it's always fishing in the rain is the best fishing. And I kind of looked at her and I said, well, yeah, maybe in the rain, but not in a gale. And yeah. she says, no, no, we got to go out. We got to go out. So sure enough, there we are. And the particular pool that I was on, you were able to wade out along a shoal yep. uh, and then cast 
you know, downstream and the wind was at my back and the wind was so furious that this particular streamer, I couldn't keep it on the surface. I couldn't get it under the water. I couldn't keep it. It was just flying in the air and plopping on the surface, flying in the air and plopping on the surface. Uh, it's called a Hornberg, by the way. Uh, so when it was at its zenith up in the air, uh, the largest trout to this date that I have seen or caught just flies out. Its uh, tail is literally out of the water, grabs it and is back down. And of course, now the fight is on. And my wife comes over and says, um, should I get the net, which we had left uh, in our, in our truck because I didn't think I was going to catch anything. Yeah. And I said, ah, it's too late. I said, you know, by the time you get back, it's going to all be over one way or the other. So anyway, I fought the fish for quite some time. I get them right to my, my wading boot and I'm, I'm leaning down to grab them and he turns and he breaks off the Hornberg, uh, and he's gone. Now the horn, the Hornberg is a streamer or a fly that was created by a Wisconsin warden. But if you live in New England or you fish in New England, you know the Hornberg because people in New England treat it as if it's their, you know, their, their gift from God. Every New England angler has a Hornberg in his kit. Now, I didn't know any of this at the time. This is the meat and potatoes. This is the meat and potatoes. I had no, no idea. So uh, now I go back to Tom the next morning. We're checking out, you know. And uh, again, I'm a young fisherman. I'm just starting out. And I couldn't remember the name of the, the fly, the Hornberg. Couldn't remember it. And I'm, I'm saying to Tom, you know, this was the biggest fish of, of a lifetime. That was an amazing fly you gave me. I want a dozen of them. And <laughs> he looked at me and he said, Bob, I give flies to everybody. And I, I just... I change them every day. I don't know what fly I do. I don't remember. And I'm trying so hard to think of it. And I just blurt out, it's the Goldberg, that Jewish fly. You must remember it. Well, of course, it wasn't a Jewish fly and it wasn't a Goldberg. It was right. a Hornberg. A Hornberg. Oh, discovered that much later. So, so that, that's, my, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. And uh, you'll find that story in different versions, in essays and short stories, in, in different places where I write. But uh, So do you think the fly with that story, I mean, do you think the fly is really that important or is it more the, the fishing technique and, and all that? you know, for those fish. I'm sure that day it was the fishing technique, uh, because we have very large stone flies that come back to lay their eggs. And that, that, uh, that Hornberg, uh, you know, plopping back and forth on the surface could very well have appeared to have been a, a stone fly, you know, laying eggs. Yeah. Um, gotcha. also, our, our fish are very aggressive. Um, and, and action on a fly, uh, is really important. Uh, again, you know, when you're fishing um, in, in other regions, you know, you don't want any drag, you don't want any action, uh, you want a natural drift. Many times uh, with our fish, you can have a natural uh, drift and they don't take. And if you just twitch the fly at the last minute, you know, you get a horrendous strike. Gotcha. So I, I think it's more, more that than anything else. But I tell you, the, the Hornberg is a cherished fly in New England. Everybody has it in their kit. Everybody uses it. Everybody swears by it. That's right. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Hornberg, not the Goldberg, not the uh, the Goldberg, right. but the Hornberg. I'll put it in the show notes. And and what is you know what's keeping you from just? It sounds like you spent a lot of time up there uh, fishing. I guess uh, this season maybe this is the answer. But from just kind of moving up in the Maine and just staying up there year round. Well, I try to keep this on the down low, but uh, I have to earn a living, and I earn a living as an attorney. Oh wow. So- 
Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you know, I, I'm a lawyer, and I have my own office, and it, it, I've, I've had a, I've had an office, you know, for the last I don't know, almost. 40, 50 years. Uh, and so that's really what, what, what keeps me, uh, you know, down South. Um, and as I said, my wife and I, uh, when, when we first met and married, um, we purchased this 12 acres of land. We built our own house on it. It's a little, little Cape Cod, nothing fancy. Uh, but, um, you know, we just love this property and, and we, we literally have deer and I should say, and it abuts a hundred acres of uh, undeveloped um, uh, woodland. Private or like national forest? Uh, No, it's just, it's, it's privately owned. It's just a natural forest and and it has, it has not been developed. It's hard to believe that that's in the state of New Jersey, but in this Northwestern corner of the state, uh, it's basically farmland and forest. Um, so we've lived on our vacation home in a way, all of our married lives. And and I just, I don't think I could ever give it up. I think we'll probably be buried on on the property. Either that or they'll, they'll throw my ashes on a stream somewhere. Yeah, exactly. No, it sounds cool. I was one of that. That is really uh, sounds like a cool uh, little spot there. So let's let's take it back. You know, again, we're staying up in that main, that kind of that northern part. Um, so the season is pretty short. as it? It starts in in like late May, and when does it end? When is when are you done fishing? Yeah. So so uh, June, uh, as I said, is the dry fly season. When you get into the second or third week of June, most folks that do not reside in the area do not want to be there because that's black fly season and the black flies, uh, you know, these are biting flies. Uh, they're, they're, they're really intense. So, um, uh, but the fishing can be intense as well during those, those two last two weeks of June, July, um, is caddis season, uh, all through July and August, the fishing starts to wane. Uh, that happens to be when I really like to be up there because I can, I, I know where the fish are. Uh, and so I can fish to my heart's content and never see another angler. Yeah. And are the bugs gone by that time? Oh yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. But yeah, by, you know, we have the black flies in June and then the mosquitoes in July. I don't find the mosquitoes to be all that bad. Um, and, and August is just, you know, a beautiful time of year. September, um, is also a great time of year. And then in late September is when those same fish that were in the lakes and following the smelt up the rivers, uh, they're, they're going back up to, up the rivers again, uh, on their own spawning run. Mm. So, uh, those two weeks in September, as long as we get rain, uh, they're another great time uh, to fish. So those two weeks, the last two weeks in May, the last two weeks in September in between, uh, you know, we, we have, um, tailwater, uh, we have a tailwater fishery, uh, the rapid river, uh, the McGalloway river, uh, below upper dam, um, there are many places to fish, uh, throughout July and August, uh, where you could, you know, uh, you, you have your dry fly, uh, season. So, yeah. um, and then, uh, the season officially ends, uh, the last day of September in most of our rivers, there are some ponds and streams that are open through October 15th, but the majority of anglers, they're now, they're now getting ready for hunting season. Um, right. and, uh, so usually, you know, end of September. Gotcha. And are you, are you doing some hunting up there as well? I do not, but I, I've, I've got, you know, plenty of friends that do, um, uh, I've just never, you know, picked up a, a rifle. So what is the, is it just like deer hunting? Oh, it's everything. So you start now I may get my, I may get my, my dates wrong on this because I'm not a hunter, but it starts in October, 
let's see. No, actually, it starts in, um, I believe it's the, actually the last week of August, in around then. That, that's bear season. Uh, we, we've got black bear. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, and then you have uh, grouse season in October, uh, grouse and woodcock. Uh, grouse in Maine are called a partridge. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, that's a big deal. Uh, and then, yeah, you've got, you've got deer, which I, I think is uh, November. Um, the moose, do you got, do you have moose up there? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lottery for the moose. Uh, the moose are not as plentiful as they were, uh, in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into a political thing. Sure. Uh, and you know, some people are still saying that, uh, you know, the weather patterns are not changing. Trust me, uh, you know, I, I, if you're an outdoorsman, you know the weather patterns are yeah, changing. Yeah, there's, there's no question where the, the climate is changing. There's there's no question about that. Yeah, uh, you know, so, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we did not have ticks in Maine. Uh, there just were no ticks because it was too cold. Uh, well, now we do have ticks. And uh, so the young moose are uh, rubbing off all their fur. Uh, and, you know, because the ticks are irritating them and then they go through the winter and yeah, they're dying off they're in the winter because they don't have their fur. Wow. So, um, you know, um, uh, if you believe in science and you believe in Darwin and, and, uh, you know, hopefully they'll work it through where moose will develop, uh, to, and yeah, they'll deal, they'll deal with them. Uh, but we've lost a lot of our, 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 our moose population as, as a result of that. Uh, they're, they're just such gorgeous creatures, goofy creatures, but, oh, uh, yeah. they so wonderful to see. The CRC system for Trestle provides secure, convenient storage for your fully rigged fly rods with unsurpassed gear protection. Every CRC system comes with a secure mounting clamp, padding in the reel compartment, and their proprietary suspended rod liners. Leave your gear on your vehicle full time or quickly take the CRC system down and telescope it into carry mode in just a few minutes. This has been a good a good run with Trestle here. Um, John and the crew out there just met them at uh, the IFTD show. It was very cool to catch up. They got a lot of great stuff going on, including a, a cool local um, story and movie about a kid who has this fly fishing passion. Uh, we're going to hopefully get Ethan on the show here sometime soon. But if you get a chance, you check out that video on Trestle. Uh, really inspirational story there. Um, but yeah, getting back to Trestle, they've obviously got it dialed. This rod carry is bomber. It's going to keep your stuff safe and secure and make it all easier. That's that's the idea, right? Making it easier to get out and go fishing. That's what Trestle's all about. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Trestle right now. Trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E. You support this podcast by clicking through to Trestle now. So you got all the wildlife up there and you got, um, I mean, what else about Maine? You know, you're coming up, you know, from down south. What else about Maine makes it special? Why, why you know, should people think about maybe, you know, checking this part of the country out? Yeah. And I do get asked that question. You know, you've been going up there for nearly 40 years, you know, uh, why not, you know, fish somewhere else? And I, I thought about that. Um, there's really three, uh, I, I think, major reasons. And there are three um uh, these three reasons are, you know, uh, some areas might have one of these or two of these, but Maine has all three. So one, I think we've talked about is the rich sporting tradition that 
for me is very important. I, I just think it's really neat that I can fish in a pool, in a run, or I could be hiking on a trail that some guy from the 1800s uh, was on that same trail and that same pool and that same run. And I, and I know the guy's name because I've yeah. read about it. Right. Uh, you know, secondly is I'm fishing over wild fish. I'm not, there are no stocked fish, especially in the Rangeley region. Now, some of the other regions that I, I spoke about, uh, the eastern side of the state and the middle side of the state, yeah, th- there are stocked fish. But I could tell you that the Rangeley Lakes region, uh, you're only fishing over wild fish. And the, the trout are native. They've been there since before the Abenakis came down in their birch bark canoes. And the salmon, the landlocked salmon, were introduced in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but they've gone wild now. So you're fishing over wild fish, you've got this rich sporting tradition, and you're fishing in country uh, that is about as wild as you can have, you know, short of being uh, in, in northern Canada. Or- yeah, get up to Canada. It's the most wilderness that you have in the northeast part of the U.S. It truly is, and it's kind of a I mean, I describe it as a, a combination of melancholy and majestic. I mean, it's just, it, it's this beautiful country, but it's a dark, uh, it, it is, there's a dark beauty. There's a little bit of a danger to it. Uh, you know, my dad had a heart condition from his fifties. Now he, he lived into his late eighties, but he always worried. Uh, he always had to be close to a hospital or a doctor. And I remember he once said to me, Bob, you know, what happens if you have a heart attack up there? And I looked at him and I said, dad, that means it's the end of the line. I'm going to die. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's that danger. You know, if you break a leg, there's no easy way out. Uh, you know, if you're three miles up a, up a stream with no cell phone service, you're on your own. And there's something about that uh, that appeals to me. I'm, I'm not quite sure what, but it just appeals to me that, that you know, you could still live your life a little dangerously. Uh, there's a certain appeal and interest to that. Uh, that I that I find important to just get away from cell phones, yeah. get away from computers, and so you can do all. You have all three of those uh, in one place, and and that's what I say to folks that if that's the thing you're interested in, uh, you want to you know you want to give this region a try. Yeah, and what about like you know um, I mean obviously you've got Canada all around you up there. I mean have you uh, you know kind of touched the water up there a little bit? Or is there there must be a lot of opportunities for you know brook all sorts of different fishing up there as well. Sure. Uh, to be honest with you, no. I, I, I honestly have. The, the only fishing I've done in Canada is in Nova Scotia. Uh, I actually did that uh, before uh, my wife and I were dating, and we spent a couple of summers up in up in Nova Scotia, uh, uh, which, which, by the way, is just lovely country with lovely people. We were so infatuated with Nova Scotia and Canada. I just think the Canadian people are, are great. Uh, when we were married, uh, our processional hen uh, was the Canadian national anthem. Uh, and I don't know the first thing about hockey, but I remember people coming up to me after the wedding saying, hey, I didn't know you were a hockey fan. Right. Apparently, you know, that that's what they play. But, um, oh, yeah. but uh, no, I, I haven't fished Canada in, in many, many years. But again, I would recommend Nova Scotia to folks. It's it's a great, great part of Canada. Yeah. And, and then down in New Jersey, also there's some opportunities down there, right? But uh, that's not, you're not spending much time fishing around New Jersey or any of that stuff. You know, believe it or not, uh, I have a, a little trout stream and more of a brook with that is 10 minutes from my house that has wild brook trout, rainbow trout, and brown trout in it. They, those fish were stocked in the 1970s, and the state discontinued the stocking program, and that 
particular stream. I'm not telling you the name, by the way. No, no, no. We'll keep that secret. <laughs> and and it, it is a great uh, a great uh, little stream. Uh, so so when I am here, uh, yeah, I spend a lot of time with a little uh, you know six foot three uh, cane rod, you know, fishing that stream and have a, have a time there. So if I was coming up there again, we're taking in and I'm, I'm looking at maybe coming up and finding a lodge or someplace I can go. And actually, since I don't have a cabin, is there a lodge you'd recommend to, to check out to get this experience? Sure. So of course, you know, in, in any of these regions in Maine, you know, you've got, a, you've got motels and you've got hotels and you've got camping and, um, and you could probably rent a, a cottage and all those, all that good stuff. But Maine is known for these traditional uh, sporting lodges, as I said, uh, that date back to the 1800s. Most of them may only have had three, maybe four owners uh, since then. Um, and um, typically it would be a main, a central building, you know, built out of logs usually. Um, and that's where you would take your meals. And on a really bad day, there's usually a room, you know, where you could sit and, and play chess checkers or cribbage is a big deal in new england oh i love cribbage yeah yeah uh and then on either side of the lodge would be these cabins uh where that's where you would actually spend your 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 evening and they all pretty much look the same many of them are on lakes and then from the lakes you could either fish the lakes or you go up and down the, the, the rivers and streams so in the rangeley region um the three that i'm familiar with are bozebuck mountain camps and they are run uh, by uh, Mike and Wendy Yates. How do you spell that? Bozebuck? Yeah, Bozebuck, B-O-S-E-B-U-C-K, Bozebuck Mountain Camps. Uh, they are on, uh, they basically give you access to the McGalloway uh, River system. Oh, there you go. Grants Camps, uh, Grants is run by John and, and Carolyn Blunt, B-L-U-N-T. Uh, Grants Camps is on um, Kennebago Lake. And they give you access to about 16 miles of the Kennebago River. And then Lakewood Camps, they, they have a new owner. I, I don't know their names. Yeah. Um, and Lakewood Camps is on the Rapid River. Now, Lakewood Camps, Grants Camps, Bozebuck Mountain Camps, they all have websites. Uh, and, you know, you can get a lot of information uh, off of those websites. Or, again, ForgottenTrout.com, which is my website. Uh, a lot of this information, a lot of the things we're talking about can be found on, on, on that website. there. That's good. Now, the Moosehead Lake, the Moosehead Lake region, uh, sure, they same thing. I, I don't know the names for you, but but they've got their traditional camps. And I, I tell you, on, on the East Grand Lake Stream, uh, which, again, is in the eastern uh, northeast uh, section of Maine, uh, is Weatherby's. And um, Jeff is the owner of Weatherby's. I apologize, Jeff. I'm, I'm not right now. Your name isn't uh, uh, clicking for me. Uh, but he runs a great, a, a great uh, lodge there. He, he's probably owned it for 20 years, maybe longer. Again, most of these owners uh, have, have been running these camps for, for 20, uh, 30 years. Yeah, 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 and and that so that's good. And is there also a fly shop anywhere up there? Um, sure. I mean, again, uh, all these you know uh, camps are going to have little shops right there uh, at the lodge. Oh yeah, they have shops. Yeah. Yeah. In Rangeley, um, uh, Brett and Susan Dom, D A M M, uh, they run the Rangeley Region uh, Sports Shop. Mm-hmm. That's just a great shop. I mean, they've got everything you could possibly want. I think they're Orvis endorsed and yeah, uh, perfect. Uh, and and uh, all these places, both Brett's a guide, and all these lodges would have guides if you want them. Uh, 
Yeah, they got it covered. Okay, so so give us a little rundown. We've been digging into this Maine, and obviously it sounds like this uh, a short season, but an amazing place to go to. Uh, you got a little black flies to deal with. Other than that, you know, uh, you've potentially got moose and bear. It's, it sounds really amazing, um, and I'm sure these influenced your writing. So talk a little about, give us a rundown on your books. You've written a few, and, and talk about what you have going, what you've written, and what you have coming. Sure. Before I do that, can I just give you one more story? Yeah. Okay, so... Um, again, we were talking about Upper Dam and the fact that uh, back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, there were a lot of interesting people that gravitated there. So there was a guy named Shang. By interesting people, do you mean kind of like these? this is in the, the 60s, kind of like the, the, the counterculture type of person? Actually, it was before the 60s. Oh, okay. So it, just interesting in the sense that um, not oddballs, but the, the characters. Uh, uh, you know, Maine is full of characters. Uh, and this fellow, Shang, S-H-A-N-G, Shang Wheeler, um, he was a very well-known carver of decoys. Uh, he was really, really good at it. And he was also a great fisherman. And, and, and he was talented at a lot of different things. But in any event, so he's up there, fly fisherman. And uh, he came up with this, this idea, this fable, uh, this tale of a fish known as white nose Pete. Now, the reason why the fish had a white nose is, according to Shang, uh, he lived for over a hundred years below Upper Dam. And he was so old, of course, that his, his face went white. A brook trout? This was a brook trout. Yep. And, uh, and he was also known as pincushion Pete because he had this knack of counting coup. Uh, so anybody that attempted to catch him, uh, the, uh, a white nose would, would basically, uh, uh, you know, tear their, their streamer or fly. And then he had it in his draw. Uh, so he would have hundreds of flies and, and streamers in his draw if you had the chance to see him. Uh, so, and he came up with a poem called the ode to white nose Pete. And, uh, one day he's out fishing with a guy named Joe Bates. And at the time, Joe was a young man, uh, fast forward, uh, Joe becomes Colonel Joseph Bates. And he writes three or four books about streamers and, uh, big fish fishing in this region. But at the time he's just a, a young guy fishing with Shang. And sure enough, he catches this, this really large trout and he turns to Shang and says, I think I've got white nose Pete. And at the last minute, the fish breaks off and Shang, of course says, yeah, I guess you did get white nose Pete, uh, but the fish is gone. All right. Now, Joe, uh, this is right before World War II. Uh, Joe uh, enlists in the army. Uh, he, he becomes a captain, as I said. He eventually becomes a colonel. But at some point during the war, he's in the Pacific, and he writes a letter back to Shang, and he says, you know, if I ever survived this hell, I'm coming back, and I'm going to catch that damn fish. Now, what happens next, I think, is kind of a dirty trick. But Shang, because he was a great carver of decoys, he carves um, the, the draw and the face of white nose Pete with all the streamers and whatnot in his draw takes a photograph of it and sends it back to, to Joe and says, sorry, Joe, but I caught him first. <laughs> all right. Now that mount of the fish was lost for many, many years. Uh, but it was rediscovered about 10 years ago and now it is in the Rangeley Lakes sporting museum. Uh, along with the plaque that uh, that shows the poem of the ode to White Nose Pete, and on June, I think it's June fourth of this year, in the town of Rangeley, they are going to have their first annual White Nose Pete fly fishing uh, festival. Uh, so those are the type of things that that kind of you know grab me. So that's a true story. 
Well, yeah, that's a true story. Uh, and, you can go and, to the Rangeley. You can go like right now. I could maybe find a, a picture of that and put it in the show notes of that fish, that wooden fish. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, if I get the chance, I will send you uh, some information on it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but yeah, the, the the museum has the mount and has the ode. Um, and as far as I know, White Nose Pete is still uh, living underneath underneath. Still living, and and to this day, yeah, I'm not sure what the average lifespan of a brook trout is, but it's probably a, a few years, typically, right? Uh, probably, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I I would think no more than three or four. <laughs> exactly. Although there are some fish species that definitely do live uh, over a hundred years. You know, they're not probably. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's any living up there, but yeah, there are, there are some older fish. We uh, we recently uh, had a episode of um, Ray Troll, who's a fish artist up in uh, Ketchikan, and he described the evolution of uh, life and, and fish and our connection of like literally we are fish out of cool. water, right? The evolution yeah. of us yeah. us from fish, the lobe lobe fin. He went into the whole history. It's really interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of fish. That's the amazing thing about fish is they are unbelievable. The diversity, the, the history. I mean, we all come from fish, so it's this crazy, yeah. uh, right? And then when you catch Pete, was it, was it uh, the ode to Pete? So when you catch yep. Pete, I mean, literally Pete is kind of your, your long lost cousin kind of, right? That's right. <laughs> That's, uh, you know what? I think you just gave me a story. I'm going to have to. Exactly. That. There you go. Well, you got to look up, you got to look up Ray Troll because his art, yeah. I'm sure will inspire you. He has this one piece of art called, um, he calls it fish. Well, he's got a song called fish worship. He's like fish worship. Is it bad? You know, is something wrong with me because I love fish so much. You know what I mean? And then, and then yeah. he's got, he's got this other one where he, um, the fish come back and haunt him that he's killed over the years. So he's got these, cool. he has these nightmares for being haunted by the fish. But anyways, yeah. uh, this has been fun, Bob. I have, you know, I think that I've been trying to paint the picture of, of Maine and I love it because it's Portland, Maine, you know, that's the one city, um, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm actually out on the other side of the country in Portland, Oregon. Right. So it's, I always yeah. hear about, you know, you hear about Portland, Maine and it sounds like a really amazing place. And, um, yeah, definitely. This is good. Anything else you want to shed light on before we get out, uh, out of here or do you want to touch base on your books? Yeah, just just real real quickly. So um, I've written a number of fly fishing novels that are, that are set in in this region, and um, my latest book uh, just came out actually December fifteenth. Uh, so yeah, I would like to plug that. It's called River Flowers, and it's actually a book of short stories. And um, what really uh, um, struck me was one of my favorite authors is a guy named Elmore Leonard. Uh, you're probably not going to be familiar with him, but Elmore Leonard actually wrote a the story that became a movie called Get Shorty. Oh with, yeah, yeah, with John Travolta. Yeah. So Elmore was actually known uh, later in his career for writing a film noir, uh, not film noir, but yeah, film noir, but books having to do with with you know detectives and uh, stuff like that. But before that. As a younger writer, he wrote short stories about westerns uh, like Louis L'Amour, and uh, I've got a, a book of maybe 250 pages of these short stories. And I mean, literally, you could taste the dust. Uh, you know, uh, you could uh, hear the, the sagebrush blowing in the wind. Uh, and his stories were about saloon keepers and cowboys and right. sheriffs and outlaws and desperados and boy, you just felt you were there. And and what I wanted to do was the exact same thing for people that fly fished, but in Maine, in the state of Maine, in New Hampshire. 
Um, I wanted you to, to, you know, know what it was like to be a local angler who watches sports come up to his water to fish or what it's like to be a sport, what it's like to be a lodge owner, what it's like to be a guide, what it's like to be a poacher, what it's like to be a warden. What's the connection of all these people uh, to the great Northwoods and to fly fishing? You know, they're all getting something out of it, both men and women. And I wanted the balsam. I wanted you to be able to smell the balsam. I wanted you to be able to hear loons. Uh, you know, I wanted people to really feel what it was like to be able to, to, to fish in northern Maine, northern New Hampshire, in those wild uh, places, you know, what are what is our connection to wild fish and wild places, and, and why do we gravitate toward them? So that's this new book called um, uh, River Flowers, uh, which is again a collection of short, short stories. So if if folks are interested in that book or they're interested in any of my writing, uh, they could either go to my website, ForgottenTrout.com, or uh, they can email me at McGalloway. M-A-G-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y at Mac.com. Uh, and uh, they can get autographed copies of, of books, you know, directly from me, or they can just get a book through Amazon uh, or any of the stores in Maine, uh, the bookstores in Maine, uh, you know, carry them as well. That's perfect. So, yeah, that would be about it for me. That's perfect. Yeah, no, I'll put a link to that right at the top in the show notes so people can check that out. And yeah, that's the perfect kind of finishing touches here. We t- I tried to dig into a little bit of what it felt like in Maine, and we we touched on it, and your book can take people a little bit further. And and definitely, my plan is to get up to every, you know, I'm going to get around the country, so I'm, I'm definitely going to swing by, you know, and, and hopefully connect with you, uh, you know, in the next couple of years. And um, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. We got my email address, so if you want to fish the region, you know, you give me a holler and, and we'll get together. Yeah, well, what I might do is we're setting up these trips, um, the kind of trips with listeners now, and uh, and if I get enough people that talk about showing interest, you know, maybe I'll let people send a check back with me if they have enough interest in going up there, then I'll put together a trip with a few people, and, and I'm sure there's some people probably up northeast that would love to hook up, and I'm so I'm trying to do that in the next couple of years, do some more kind of uh, connect our podcast listeners to some of the people and places. Cool. So if, if that happens, maybe we'll, we'll meet you up there and, and go from there. Yeah. This is good. All right, Bob. Well, thanks again for all the time. And uh, you, we will send everybody out to you if they have questions and want to connect with you. And we'll, we'll take it from there. My pleasure, Dave. Take care. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links, and everything else we covered today, head over to wetflyswing.com slash 314, 314. We'll get you the goods. If you want to find out what we have going right now in the giveaway department, it's always at wetflyswing.com slash giveaway. You can get all of the uh, all the information there on the current giveaway. And as this is happening, um, I know we have a few going, so I'm going to let you take a look right now and be surprised. Thanks for stopping in and listening to the full show. I'm excited to keep in touch with you and hope to maybe see you on the water or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.